As I was praying and preparing for tonight, I felt like God put Romans chapter 12 on my heart. So if you want to turn there, it won't be a waste of your time because we're going to come back to Romans chapter 12 as we study through our book. And I'd like to just read the first two verses to you as we get started, because my prayer has been that we would be transformed into the overcomers that God wants us to be. So in chapter 12 of Romans, the first two verses, Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. I wanted to open with that. I know it's a very well-studied and familiar passage, but I think it was right for us to open with tonight. That was on my heart, that this process of transformation would lead us into a walk that is able to overcome sin, able to overcome falsehood with truth, and able to overcome evil with good. Those are my two chapters. That was my assignment this evening. So if you're in the wrong place, no, you're in the right place. Chapters 3 and 4, and those are the titles. Keep your bookmark there in Romans 12 if you want to. We'll be coming back later. But I'd like to just sort of march through chapters 3 and 4, and then I'm going to share a personal testimony with you of something that God has helped me overcome since we came home from the mission field. It's interesting that Kristen put that in my bio, that we've been home a little bit less than four years now. But that's sort of the story, is what that four years looked like and how the Lord helped me get to where I am today. In chapter 3, this is the one that's titled, We're Overcoming Falsehood with Truth. He ends this chapter. I want to go all the way to the end. I want to start at the end. On page 60, he ends this chapter with a verse from John chapter 8. It's John 8, 32. And this is half of that verse. We'll read it now, and then I'd like to read the whole thing in just a few minutes. But it says, You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. So we'll come back to that in just a few minutes, but I'd like to quickly look at page 79, because the end of our second chapter that we'll talk about tonight, the chapter on overcoming evil with good, ends with Galatians 6, 9. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. So let's march through chapter 3 together. We'll start on page 44. The first thing that stood out to me, well, let's start on page 42. The first thing that stood out to me was that we live in a world of lies, which we probably know, but it's nice to be reminded that the world we live in is fallen, and so we encounter falsehood, And that comes all the way back from Genesis chapter 3, that sin entered the world through one man, and that now you and I, all these generations later, are born with a sinful nature. And that becomes a daily struggle, right? And that's the reason why Paul writes to the church in Rome, 
not to be conformed to this world, but to be transformed. I want to look at page 44, where Dr. David Jeremiah is talking about the belt of truth, which comes from Ephesians chapter 6, verse 14. But I think he paints a beautiful picture here of a warrior who's dressed for battle and wearing a belt that holds many useful tools. And he does a good job describing what those tools might look like and how they might be used in battle. And I thought for us a good analogy might be a purse, often worn around the middle of the body, contains a lot of tools that you might need to whip out and use for the battle you face. Maybe you have an extra diaper and a juice box in your purse. I used to. And now I just have like breath mints and deodorant. My children don't need juice boxes and diapers anymore. And whatever is in my purse, I can still blame on them. Uh, Ten years, I might not have anybody to blame it on. So I won't tell you what's in my purse in ten years. I thought it was kind of important, it was important to me, that the belt is worn around the middle of the body. So it's this idea that it's central, right? And that all the useful tools hang from there. And we should consider that truth is central. It's central and essential in our walk of faith. And all of our tools, right, like your testimony is a very sharp tool, one that you can use very quickly and easily, because everybody has a testimony of how Christ saved them. That tool might hang on that belt, but it has to be anchored on truth if it's to be an effective tool used in ministry. Let's look at page 45 together, where he begins to define what truth is. So the first question is, what is truth? And then in just a couple of pages, we learn that God is truth. But as we explore this idea of defining truth, I want to go to John chapter 8 now. You can turn there if you want to. I cheated and put these sticky notes there, so you guys would think I was really fast, but... I want to start in verse 31, actually, because I'd like for you to hear the whole quote. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. In my mind, it was kind of like a circle or a cycle, right? I want to know the truth, so I study the word, and then I know him, and he is the truth, And I want to know more of the truth, so I study the word, and then I know him, and he is the truth. So that's my way of breaking down the definition of truth. But it's a fixed entity. Truth is not changing. It's fixed and steadfast. I'd like to read a paragraph from the bottom of page 49. These aren't my words. I'm quoting um, Dr. Jeremiah here. In the book on page 49, I'll give you just a second to get there. I don't want you to miss it. He says, truth is not some nebulous idea, a flexible concept, or a theoretical assumption. It is a solid, clearly defined, unalterable entity. It is ultimate reality, residing in the triune God of the universe, and it is not open to reevaluation or redefinition. And aren't you glad that our God is like that? Not open to reevaluation or redefining 
And he is also, like the truth, fixed and unchanging. And I find that, as a woman, especially comforting, because I can be emotional, crazy, veer off the path, step out of God's will for my life, get away from what is true. And I find him in the same place when I return, because he's fixed and unchanging. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So no matter how far I step out of line, I find him in the same place. And I am glad that I can rely on him. So let's go through a few practical steps for overcoming lies with truth. The first subtitle says we overcome falsehood by seeking the truth. And there are two points underneath that. One is to study the truth, and the other is to submit to the truth. And to study the truth is active. It requires a little bit of work. We have to be purposeful. We want to study God's word, meditate on it, and hide it in our hearts. The second suggestion is that we submit to the truth. And I'd like to read from the bottom of page 51 in the book. And this is a quote from Voltaire. I hope I'm saying that right. But it says, God created man in his own image. And man has been trying to return the favor ever since. God is not my God or your God. He's simply God. He has never changed and he never will. It is God's desire to change us into his image. But we have neither the authority nor the ability to change God into our image. It is simply not our place to create a God who makes us feel good about the way we're doing life. And that's my suggestion to you tonight, is the way we submit to the truth is to submit to him, created in his image, in his likeness. The next subtitle says that we overcome falsehood by speaking the truth. And again, there are two suggestions made to us, that speaking the truth should be done boldly and in love. From Ephesians 4.25, it says, let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor. So we want to speak boldly. And then from Ephesians 4, chap chapter 4, verse 15, it reminds us to speak the truth in love. When I was first saved, I had a pastor's wife. Her name was also Kathy. And she was so gracious to me. She mentored me and discipled me so thoroughly. She invited me into her home, and I was allowed to watch her be a wife and be a mom. She had five children, and they were small when I first got saved. So I was watching her discipline them and love them, and she was homeschooling them. And one of the things that she would always ask them when they came to speak the truth, right, was, is it kind, is it loving, and is it necessary? So I used that with my girls and maybe with my guy when they were really little, well, I thought that was a really wise way to guide people. What, if what you're saying is not kind, loving, or necessary, don't say it. The next subtitle is Overcoming Falsehood by Living the Truth. And the two suggestions made to us here are confession. It takes confession to live the truth. And correction. Also, it takes correction to live the truth. I'd like to read to you from Psalm 139, 
verses 23 and 24. Now, for me, these two verses included both of those ideas, both the correction and the confession. And the psalmist is saying here, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. So this idea of confession is that what is false or the lie that I've told, the lie perhaps that I've believed, is brought into the light. And James encourages us to confess our sins to one another. That's how we deal with them. That's how God brings that healing to us. And then the correction part would be that once these things are exposed, God has shown me even how to confess the things I didn't know were inside, that he would lead me in the way everlasting, that he would lead me into a walk that is true or based on truth. He concludes the chapter by saying he wants to turn up the volume on truth, which I thought was a sweet testimony. He's lost his friend, Billy Graham, and he's saying that he wants to live a life that's loud that way. I lost my sister-in-law in 2008. She died of brain cancer. And I don't know what would be true today, but at that time, her life was louder than mine. And I could identify with that sweet testimony he was sharing about his friend, because when she died, I thought the same thing. Well, if she's going to be taken off to heaven, then somebody else has to fill that role. And so it was inspiring, you know, to think about living a life that was loud like hers. All right, let's move on to chapter 4 so we don't run out of time. Overcoming evil with good. And I want to start on page 62. I loved, loved, loved this letter from the gymnast to her perpetrator. Did you read this testimony? So on page 62, I'm not going to read the whole quote, but she's comparing the crooked line to the straight line. And she's saying, I know what you did was evil because I have good as a standard. For example, I know what a crooked line is because I have a straight line as a standard. And aren't you thankful that we have the truth of God's word as a standard? Aren't you thankful we've experienced the goodness of the Lord and we hold his goodness as the standard? And that helps us to recognize what is evil. His suggestion is that there are two types of evil, so I want to spend a minute talking about each one. There is an evil within and an evil without. And the evil within is my sin nature, right? Jeremiah says that the heart is deceitful and wicked. Who could know its ways? And so that just is because I was born with a sin nature. And if you don't think that people are born with a sin nature, you should just have children. I'll share a quick story. When they were like preteens, and I'm always talking about my girls more than my guy, but um, the girls were, I'd say, you know, like seven, nine, and ten, approaching not rebellious years, not quite teenagers, but they started to have more of their own ideas. Have you experienced this when you're raising kids? All of a sudden, they were smarty pants a little bit. And my first instinct was to think, who told you that? What friend? What family? What song have you been listening to? What movie have you watched? Because that kind of influence had to come from outside. Because we don't talk that way in our house, and we didn't listen to that song, and we didn't watch that movie. And I felt like the Lord spoke to me and said, consider that 
they have their own bad ideas, that they have their own evil thoughts. There's a sin nature in each one of them. And it might not have been that they got influenced by something else. It could have just been their own naughtiness coming from the inside out. So that's what sin on the inside is like. I'm going to read to you from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. Because this is what we need. For the evil within, we need Christ within, right? That's how we're going to overcome that kind of evil with good. So 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So for the evil within, Christ becomes sin so that I can partake in his righteousness. The second type of evil is an evil without. And this would be like an evil that is done unto me, right? An evil that is not inside of me, but is done toward me. And that requires also, you guessed it, our reliance on Christ. I want to read to you from Romans 12. So I promised you we were going back there, and we are. And this is verse 19. You know this one, but I'll read it to you. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. We're not righteous, not perfect and pure and holy. I just said that he became sin so we could partake in his righteousness, but he is absolutely righteous, perfect, pure, and just. So if I want to make something right, I'm going to use my words or my actions to try to repay evil with something. It's not going to be set exactly right, but he is righteous. And so if I allow him to repay that evil in the way that he sees fit, it will be set right. And I'm not an English teacher, but I just thought I couldn't pass up the chance to use the root word in the word. So he's righteous. He can fix it. He can make it right. And then I feel like the end of this chapter four is sort of a bullet list. Six things that we could do while we patiently wait on the Lord to repay evil with good. Patiently waiting. Are you a patient waiter? And I don't want to add anything to the scripture. It doesn't say here that we're waiting on the Lord to repay, right? That his wrath is something I need to wait on or that his vengeance that belongs to him is requiring me to wait. But the personal application for me would be wait. Because if I'm going to use my words to fix it or if I'm going to use my actions to fix it, if I'm going to reconcile right? I'm going to do it now. And this is saying, don't do it. Let the Lord do it. And I don't know about you, but I feel like my timing might be ahead of his sometimes. <laughs> so for me, the application would be to wait on the Lord. And beginning on page 68, we'll just go through these really quickly. There are six things we can do to occupy our minds and hearts until the Lord sees fit. 
The first one is to leave vengeance to God, which we just read from Romans 12. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. The second one, and these are his suggestions from the text. The second one says to plan ahead. In Romans 12, 17, where it says, have regard for good things in the sight of all men, that word regard is translated plan ahead, right? And the third one says, lean into the next right thing. So if you don't know what to do next, just do the next thing. Elizabeth Elliot said that a lot. When I first got saved, she was my favorite author. I read everything that she wrote. I read all of Jim Elliott's books. I read his journal. I read everything I could find on that group of missionaries and how they were martyred in the jungle. I named my third daughter Dayuma after the first Indian girl that got married. And I say she was my favorite author when I first got saved because I don't have a favorite author now. I'm married and I have four kids, so I don't read. Maybe you have that same problem. But someday soon, someday in the future, I plan to have a favorite author again. It took me like four months to read this book to prepare for tonight. So, And I only had to do two chapters. I read the other parts just as a favor to you. The fourth one says, Leave, live peaceably with all men. And that's not like as much as it depends on other people, Right? Or, like, to the limit that I can tolerate your behavior. As much as it depends on me, I should live peaceably with other people. Let good overcome evil. And I'll just say again that that is the Lord's job. But there's a verse in First Peter. I'll read it to you real quick. This is on page 75. Not returning evil for evil... Or reviling for reviling. That might be just the way we say it in South Carolina. Is it reveling? I'll just say it like we say it in South Carolina. Reviling for reviling. But on the contrary, blessing. Knowing that you are called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. I want to inherit a blessing. Do you? The last one says to love your enemy. If you look on page 76, I had... I learned something new here. I had the chance to teach from Romans chapter 12 last summer to a group of women in Kenya. My husband led a trip, and I was able to go with him. And I wish I had seen this before that. I had no idea what it meant to heap burning coals on someone's head, but he gives us this little paragraph explaining it. And I understood always, because I'm sure some smart pastor told me that the connotation was if I feed my enemy or if I give him something to drink, it's going to be to his shame. It'll be so embarrassing if I repay his evil with kindness. But then there's actually an ancient Egyptian custom where if you wanted to say sorry to everybody, you walked through the street with burning coals on your head. And I think you and I should celebrate the opportunity to serve water and food instead of putting the burning coals on someone's head, sending them out the door. I'll just say as we close these two chapters before I share my testimony with you that lies come natural, but the truth is to be sought out. It's active. It's a supernatural idea that I would pursue the truth instead of taking the path of least resistance, telling a lie. Or perhaps for us as women, the more... 
the thing we're more often faulted with is that we believe a lie, right? That the devil has that as an instrument to discourage us and dishearten us. And I think to overcome evil with evil, to repay evil with evil is the same. It's the easiest way out. It's the quickest fix. Just say something nasty and move on. Repay that evil with whatever is easy to repay it with. But to wait on the Lord to repay that with good requires work. It requires thought. I might have to put energy into that. It's a supernatural idea that I would be unnatural in my response. And we need the power of the Holy Spirit for that, right? So I'll encourage you that way. Don't leave here thinking, I'll never be able to overcome lies with truth, or I'll never be able to repay evil with good. We have the power of the Holy Spirit, and he's going to help us to do that supernatural work that might not come natural at first. Well, when Kathy asked me to teach tonight or to share with you on those two chapters, she asked me to share a testimony of coming home from the mission field. And I guess it's my overcomer story. I was a little bit intimidated to share because you're going to hear later from people who've overcome cancer and people's kids who've overcome cancer. And I'm just going to stand up here tonight and tell you how sad and rebellious I was. And it's kind of a slow cooker story, like I really needed time for the Lord to tenderize my heart. And I had to apply the title for every chapter in this book, not just chapters three and four, because it was a difficult, difficult task for me to integrate my family back into this culture. Kristen told you where we lived and how long we had been out there And when I came home, I think the main problem was an identity crisis. The question that kind of, or the statement rather, that kind of kept coming up in my heart was, if I'm not a missionary, then what am I? That's how, oh yeah, this is the part where we all cry together. Are you ready? That's how I learned to be a wife out there. It's the way I had learned to be a mom out there. And I didn't want to do it here. I didn't want to relearn those skills. I didn't want to change my setting or my environment. And I didn't want my title taken away. I want to be able to call myself a missionary. I hope I'm not the only prideful woman in this room. But that's my testimony. That's the truth of it, is that I didn't want my job taken away. It was bar none the hardest thing I've ever done. And it took so much more faith to come home than it did to go out. When you go out, you sell your washing machine, you sell your car, you give away all your clothes, you put your kids on an airplane and you just take your clothes, you've got the wind at your back, your church is supporting you, everybody is super excited about what you're about to do. I was filled and anointed with the Spirit. It was never a sacrifice to me. It was always a delight. Of course, we counted the cost. We missed out on things. We missed babies being born and people getting married. There was some sorrow in it. But it was never a life of suffering for us. It was a joy and a delight to serve the Lord that way. I just found myself saying, this is my home. 
this is my stuff. These are my friends. This is my ministry. These are my kids' friends. This is my stuff. Did I say that already? This is my stuff. We came home with four children and 14 suitcases, and we had nothing. And very little faith, that was the whole problem for me. And I'm just giving a testimony of what I went through. I'm not a single mom. I had a husband to help me the whole time. But he was very sick, and that's why we had to come home. He was falling apart, literally, like organs were falling out of his body. We had an infection we couldn't beat, a wound that wouldn't heal. And I could look at him in all of that physical suffering and still not have enough compassion. I just didn't want to do it. And the Lord dragged me out of that place like a toddler throwing a tantrum. Like my heels were dug in and I was leaving marks on the ground as we left. My kids didn't want to come home and I wanted their hearts to be at ease. But it was a real shock to our system. And what we've learned, what I've learned, is that I had to trust the Lord for the long game. All I could do when we came home was obey. And I hope that's what you'll take from this testimony. Is that if you can obey the Lord, he can change your heart. And that's how I overcame, right? That's how God helped me be an overcomer in this situation. I was angry. I was rebellious. I ran hard into my sin. I just leaned into that hard heart. I don't want to do what you're asking me to do. And every time I asked him why, he just said, I love you. I guess that answers the question. I love you. And this is actually what's best for you. This is what's best for your husband. In the long run, this is going to be what's best for your kids. And he was right. I'm sure you know how the story ends. He built our faith. He built our home. He provided for us. We have a car and a washing machine. We have more than 14 bags of stuff. I actually was able to go back a year later and get my stuff. That Starbucks mug collection was really important to me. And we had trinkets from all over the world, you know, scarves and hats and baskets. You know the things in your house that have no value but are a treasure to you. I was able to go back and get those things. The Lord is sweet. Let me say that I had never leaned that hard into my sin, not in all the time I had walked with the Lord, and I never felt more pursued. His love is unfailing and unconditional. And as time went by, he softened my heart and gave me a heart that was willing to be here and serve in this way, a heart that was open and submissive to his will for my life. And it's our delight, honestly. I think all the kids would agree, and certainly Steve would. It's our delight to be a part of this body and to serve with the jobs that we have, with the ministries that we have. I want to read two things to you from Exodus before I give this over to Joyce with her book review. 
in chapter 13, and this is the thing the Lord finally said to me, like, get up, girl, get those 14 bags and get on that plane. It's from Exodus 13, 21. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way. And by night, oh, I just turned it. And by night in a pillar of fire to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. And if that weren't enough, because it wasn't, I just told you I was so naughty. In Exodus 40, verses 36 and 37, this is the closeout of the book of Exodus, right? He says, throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. And that's what I knew, but I didn't want to hear. The cloud is moving. But if the cloud was not taken up, and they did not set out, but if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that the cloud was taken up. So that's how I got moving. That's what the Lord spoke to me, is that the cloud is moving. It's time for you to get up and move to the next place to the next season of life. And I don't know what you're going through tonight. I don't know who that encourages. I don't know who has a hard heart or who's asking the Lord to help them overcome maybe a bitter attitude or a rebellious way in you. But I hope that blesses you. And I'm just praying for the rest of the study to be a blessing as well.